This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecturer at New City College of Business. Now, you're very welcome to a sort of an interesting edition of Business Impact. This is our 41st edition. The last time around, it was a bit of a milestone as we went past the, the 40th marker point, a very interesting time for us. I'd like to thank all the members of the UCD Business School who've come on and a lot of our external guests as well. We've had a real diversity of voices and we've really been covering a whole diversity of subjects on the podcast, sometimes looking at the same subject from different angles and perspectives. Climate change brings to mind. We've obviously probed and prodded the whole subject of the pandemic endlessly throughout this period. And we're going to keep up the momentum after passing the 40th marker. And today's guest is going to be no exception to some of the diversity of views and interesting perspectives that we've had in previous editions as well. Now, I want to call out some words to you. Fraud, wrongdoing, misconduct. Yeah, I thought you'd sort of stop. They are words. They're interesting words. They're somewhat stark in some respects. But that is some of the subject matter we're going to be discussing today with our guest, who I will introduce, and then I'll introduce a little bit what he's going to talk to us about. And that guest is Professor of Operational Risk in Banking and Finance. That's Professor Cal Muckley of the UCD College of Business. And Cal is focused on a very, very fascinating area, which is on mitigating fraud in the financial services and broader space. He's got some very interesting research that has been socialized out among the community that looks at this area over recent months. And we're going to get into all of that in the next few minutes. But first of all, you're very welcome to the podcast. Cal, how are you? Good morning, Emmett. Uh, delighted to talk this morning. And one of the reasons I brought you on, Cal, is as the pandemic is grinding on, these issues of fraud, wrongdoing in a financial services context is intensifying. There are some reports out there that suggest that instances are rising and a lot of people are saying to themselves, well, what can be done about this? What are the effective ways to mitigate? And is there a role there that technology can play? But first of all, I thought we'd get up and running by asking you, Cal. It's a very interesting area. There's a lot going on, a lot of new ideas, new technologies coming into play. What, what drew you personally into looking into this area in the first place? What's drawn me into this area is how exciting it is to see the capacity of statistical insights by way of algorithms countering fraud. So countering the human suffering that's associated with fraud and countering the societal, society-wide systemic risk that's associated with fraud as well. So there's something I think in, in my mind that kind of wakens up and flashes, uh, becomes alive uh, when I work on algorithms and trying to tease through the, the uh, idiosyncrasies of them and understand them and then deploy them with a view to successfully mitigating uh, these risks and, and these society-wide concerns. And, and as you've known in my introduction, I've used these words that are stark. You know, I'm hoping they'll, they'll stop our listeners a little bit in their tracks because they're so definitive. Fraud, wrongdoing, misconduct. But I suppose the one that we're most interested in is this phrase wrongdoing, and it can mean a lot of things. Can you unpack that a little bit for me, just from, from your own perspective? From my perspective, well, wrongdoing is deviation from right doing, which possibly isn't very helpful. I don't need to you know, go into what, what is wrongdoing in particular, because that is, that is actually very, very subjective. And it, it involves 
exploration of fascinating areas uh, such as you know, Kantian ethics and utilitarian ethics and so on. What we do in order to be actionable, in order to be pragmatic and to have impact, we focus on objective events of wrongdoing. So in other words, when a regulatory body indicates that a rule has been has been violated, so by way of, for instance, an enforcement action, that would be a wrongdoing. Or whether a financial institution identifies a transaction or a sequence of transactions on the part of a customer as um, tantamount to, say, a violation of money laundering uh, regulation, that would also be wrongdoing. So we try to focus on transactions or uh, decisions that are evidently in violation of regulation. And this is very much of the news because the pandemic is bringing things to the surface. There, there was that old idea from Warren Buffett, I think, was that when the tide goes out, you can really see who's naked. <laughs> Business models get exposed, practices get exposed. Uh, are you concerned, Cal, or, or do you have any sense of, of what might be happening out there because of the pandemic at the moment in this area? A lot more fraud is going on due to the changed environment associated with the pandemic. This is quite evident uh, by the likes of Trend Micro and Merchant Savvy and UK Finance Industry Reports, where uh, the growth in uh, in phishing, malware attacks, uh, spam and, and social engineering, all underpinning more and more fraud is very evident. So I think people are changing the way, people are evidently changing the way they they, they do things. And for instance, they're operating much more online and as they operate more and more online, then um, the scope for identity theft looms large, essentially. And people also who are more and more isolated become more vulnerable, say, to social engineering. And these are people who are perhaps uh, vulnerable to being exploited, um, whereby they might have trust in, in a counterparty where that trust really uh, isn't deserved and, and wouldn't wouldn't um, have been merited if proper due diligence had been done. But you can, you can well imagine, we can all imagine how this... Uh, pandemic, this health crisis, has isolated people and made them more vulnerable to uh, to fraud and um, to being exploited. And I think that's quite evident in the data today. Now, let's step back a little bit and, and go on a, a brief history journey. Like obviously, for, for many decades, we didn't have the benefit of machine learning. We didn't have the benefit of algorithms driving a lot of this activity, as, as you've said yourself. I suppose in previous decades, we would have had maybe auditors, internal analyst teams. Sometimes it was just a hunch based on practice over years, financial patterns that the human eye could pick up in all the paperwork that they would have generated in previous decades. These were the kind of the tools that were traditionally used in financial services to, to hunt down instances of, of fraud and wrongdoing. But all of that has changed in the last five to 10 years. A whole new suite of tools have come in. If you roll back the clock, even 10 years uh, in financial services, you have no machine learning really in operation uh, in respect to countering fraud or very, very little. So what one had were teams of, uh, of analysts, of professionals with uh, an abundance of, of experience and expertise devising rules. Uh, and when those rules were were violated, then uh, alerts would emerge. There'd be a rule break and there'd be concern raised about the possibility of fraud. And the problem here is, you know, self-evident that the vast volume of transactions that goes on makes it extremely difficult for a team of human analysts to um, to spot the patterns and to identify the fraud at all, uh, never mind in a timely manner. So what's happened is the deployment of uh, of machine learning, which is really helping uh, industry with a view to dealing with these large volumes of transactions. What machine learning does is 
it sifts through the transaction level data and identifies patterns whereby these patterns can be used to give us rules. And when these rules are, are broken, then an alert can be generated. But the point is that these rules are systematically devised, not by the, the analysts, but rather by the algorithm or by the software implementing the algorithm. So you have the computer, in a sense, learning, in a very real sense, learning what the patterns are in the data with a view to giving us better quality alerts. And in particular, giving us fewer false alarms and picking up more of the fraudulent activity. And that's what's really been going on uh, in terms of count anti-fraud work in the past half decade to decade or so. And how much human intervention is going on with these tools now? Or is there only human intervention right at the very end when the alerts get generated and somebody chooses to make a further investigation of them? Or I'm just trying to see where, where, where the machines end and where the humans begin and, and, and sort of what's that, that, that journey? Uh, well, definitely uh, when the machines end and they highlight all of these uh, alarms or or, pos true po or positives, as I would say, that's certainly where the analysts would interact to see whether they're false positives. And that's a big part of the analyst work. But yes, even before the, the, um, the machine learning uh, commences its work, the analysts have extremely important work to do because the analysts will identify uh, what the set of lead indicators are in respect to informing an alert. So that's a critical uh, point of contribution um, on the part of analysts. And what else do people do? What else do professionals do in these organizations? Well, I think what they do is that they organize these vast volumes of data so that they're accessible to the machine learning technique. And um, that's, a, that's another uh, crucially important step, which is enabled by uh, employees in these financial institutions. Now, Cal, you're talking about the machines and the algorithms learning as they go along. So, so is is it automatic that they they just get better and more efficient as they move along, or is that not necessarily inevitable? Like, in other words, is is their return to the business or their their success rate, if I could be so crude, is, is that guaranteed, or or do we not know that yet because they're only here a few years? Well, guaranteed is a strong word, but it is exciting how successful they've been. I've had teams in financial institutions which have devised and deployed these machine learning models to counter fraud. And what's evident is that these machine learning models are at a minimum an extremely valuable additional member of the team of analysts. And uh, the predictions uh, and the detection work that these machine learning models uh, perform seems to work extremely well even out of sample. Now, I, I should hasten to add here that we're focusing on trying to predict and uh, classify human behavior. And human behavior can change uh, very rapidly, as we've seen in the pandemic during this international health crisis. So, Emmett, you began this discussion, uh, you know, referring to the, the pandemic. Well, the great change in our behavior has created a lot of errors, if I can say, in respect to the, the, uh, the extent deployed machine learning models. In other words, they've been indicating a much higher rate of false positives due to the change in behavior. So a lot more alarms have been ringing when really there's no, no concern about fraud, for instance. So definitely these models need to continue to learn as the underlying data generating process, if I can use that term, uh, develops over time. But of course, that's exactly what they're doing, right? These models, they don't simply devise a rule and let it sit there and let it be implemented without revisiting whether the rule is continuing to, to provide a quality uh, alert 
as, as time passes. But rather what they do is they continuously update the devised rules with the passage of time. And in that sense, then, of course, these models can give uh, predictions even as the underlying environment uh, varies. And that's really what's so exciting uh, about uh, these, these machine learning models. I know other organizations have similar type tools. One that strikes me is the revenue commissioners, for example, have tools to you know root out in tax evasion. So I'm not asking you to comment on that, Cal, because I know that's not your, your focus of your research. But what I do notice that they they are they call them risk based, you know, and everyone uses this phrase. But particularly in the revenue, they tend to you know pay a lot of attention to where their larger exposures are situated. So in that context, is that similar in the financial services space where the, the preponderance of the work that the tools are doing, is it pointed towards larger accounts? Is it pointed towards more risky um, transactions? So how do they allocate risk and, and how much of the effort of the tools is pointed in certain directions? The beauty of these uh, machine learning informed alert models is that it's it's the machine learning itself that decides on which of the features or the lead indicators, whether it be a, you know, a large account um, or some other feature, which might be associated with the, with the presence of fraud. So do you see what I'm saying? It's no longer the responsibility of the analysts to select uh, which lead indicators will be most important in the identification of a rule, but rather the machine learning model itself does that work for us. That's a major step forward. These algorithms are actually learning themselves. As a result, the rule they devise and how they devise that rule tends to be highly opaque to the end user, the analysts on the team, but nevertheless provides us with typically a very valuable and actionable broad alert system relative to what would be there otherwise. If I could move the conversation forward into some of the actual victims of fraud and wrongdoing, because you've also done some very interesting research in these areas, and you're particularly associated with the victims in an older demographic cohort. Can you tell me a little bit about who who are the victims of fraud in this kind of world you're describing? The victims of fraud are actually all of us, okay, in the first instance. So once there's fraud, this impacts uh, the cost of doing business. For instance, I'm thinking about the, the insurance sector here, and that gets passed on to the individual by way of an increased premium. On top of that, and perhaps even more important, fraud can be a type of systemic risk. So these are events that can cause the entire financial system to become unstable. So the cost of fraud really lies on all of our shoulders. You mentioned um, some work I was delighted to to lead uh, in recent years, which is the mitigating of the financial exploitation of older persons. So yes, in, in that instance, you see older people who perhaps are suffering cognitively and as a result are are more vulnerable to this kind of fraud, or they could have no problems cognitively, but they simply happen to be those people in society that have an accumulation of wealth because they've accumulated that wealth over the decades. And these people can be relatively vulnerable as a result of one or both of these reasons to fraud whether that vulnerability comes from a culprit within their family or a stranger, you know, knocking on the door or or sending them emails or telephoning them. You know, all of these are possibilities. So you can see that who pays for fraud? Well, I really think that we all do. 
And certainly certain cohorts in society are, are relatively vulnerable to fraud. And I think definitely older persons would be within that cohort. And this is going to be an increasingly, increasingly important societal concern. It's already very material, but I think it's going to be increasingly important with the growth in that demographic in, in the years ahead. So the growth of the number of people, say, over the age of 70, um, we're going to have more and more of a, of a, you know, a material issue for society at large in respect to um, protecting older persons against uh, fraud and financial exploitation. You're obviously very clued into the machine tools. You're, you're well versed on how they work. But taking it from the consumer perspective, do you think an added way to mitigate all of this is for all of us as consumers to carry out a lot more surveillance of our own accounts you know, log on a lot more, check over things, look at your statements, etc. Do you think that is a key plank as well in in the wall of mitigation? Yeah, machine learning approach is just one tool in all of this. Uh, certainly the awareness campaigns that various financial institutions have underway are really important. I think I benefited from them myself in terms of I pay more attention now to my own uh, account transactions and historical transactions than I would have previously. You've heard of maybe the two-factor authentication approach. You're probably uh, using it yourself. There's another really important tool in the process. But if fraud, as it will, uh, gets past these uh, cold face uh, tools, so to speak, then it's very important that in that vast volume of transactions that we've got a capacity to sift through them systematically and cleverly with a view to identifying which of these transactions can be associated uh, with a fraudulent event or might be associated with a fraudulent event with a few to analysts focusing uh, their their skill set and time on that subset of transactions and ultimately uh, mitigating or countering that fraud. Now, I want to shift the conversation a bit into more controversial waters. And, and one of our previous guests, it's, it's OK, don't panic yet. <laughs> one of our previous guests was a, a colleague of yours from the business school, um, Maria Bellison, who did a very interesting podcast with me about data analytics in the HR arena. And one of the issues that came up quite prominently in that podcast was the ethical issues that cross over into this area. Now, when I was lining up the research to talk to you today, I was thinking, well, red flags, it's about fraud and banking. It's a good thing to have these machine tools. You know, what, what's not to like about this was, was kind of apart from the issues of letting the algorithm maybe take off on its own direction. And I suppose that's what I'm, I'm going to talk about. But the whole ethical framework that goes around these tools, probably more than our listeners realise, there are huge issues here and moral quicksand. Can you talk to me a little bit about it? I'm taking this from a very top level here, but the ethical issues that are wrapped up and how these tools are applied. Can you give our listeners some sense of the kind of things that arise and the considerations that need to be borne in mind when you set up these tools in the first place? The ethical risk is probably the big risk in the machine learning area. One concern here is profiling. So, uh, you know, identifying somebody as as likely to be guilty of something because they uh, happen to um, uh, come from a particular protected class of people, whether that be gender or ethnicity, or perhaps they have a disability or they're in a certain age category or whatnot. So clearly that would be unfair. And, um, you know, this seems to be happening uh, in respect to, say, uh, recruitment in HR, uh, as you've alluded to, promotions in HR. When these machine learning uh, systems are actually making a decision, as opposed to simply informing a decision, it becomes particularly problematic. But even if they're just informing a decision, you've got a problem because you've got a, a professional looking at the algorithm suggestion, and perhaps this professional is already overwhelmed with work, and you can imagine that the professional may well start to increasingly rely upon, upon the algorithm's suggestion. 
And if the algorithm is inherently biased, if it suffers algorithmic bias, then you've got a major eth ethical pitfall. And that's a huge risk for the area. So what about in the area of fraud? Well, well, certainly if I, if I freeze somebody's account because my machine learning model indicates that there's a, like, a strong likelihood of fraud in this instance, you've got a concern that maybe the machine learning model is basing its prediction on the basis of certain traits of these individuals, which you know a human would not be entitled to um, inform their decision with, such as ethnicity or gender or whatnot. So yeah, there is that concern. Now at the same time, the upside of mitigating something as uh, as foul as money laundering, there's a trade-off here for society. Is society happy to allow a certain compromise in respect to pri privacy, with a view to countering fraudulent events such as money laundering, which is another area we're working in at present. And it, it may well be the case that society is happy to make that compromise. Um, now, I'd hasten to add, it's not necessarily important to include data on the ethnicity and so forth of the customer in the machine learning model uh, with a view to achieving high quality predictions. And that's something that, you know, certainly in the anti-fraud space, something worthwhile bearing in mind. Uh, there are caveats there too, but I, I hope that uh, that speaks uh, helpfully to, to your question, Emmett. I know you talk to banks from, from various geographies. Do you get any sense that these ethical issues are getting enough attention or, or do you hear people in industry that you do engage with? Do, do you hear them talking about these issues? Are they something that's top of mind? Yeah, I have uh, teams in some of these institutions and I do hear that it's definitely top of mind for them. And one reason for that is that it's top of mind for the regulator that's continuously monitoring their behaviour. So I hear stories about FINRA, one of the financial regulator in the States, that's actually pinpointing, you know, uh, decisions by financial institutions on particular transactions and asking why was that decision made. And the idea that the institution can turn around and just say, well, the machine learning model told me so, and our machine learning model has excellent predictive capacity, doesn't hold water for the regulator. The regulator needs to know that the decision is accountable. So can they account for the, for the, uh, the prediction or the alert from the machine learning model? And this opens a fascinating area of explanatory AI. So can we, un can we tap into the machine learning black box with a view to eliciting a narrative as to why it produces its predictions in aggregate or even at the local level? So that's something that's uh, becoming increasingly a hot topic in the area as regulators put pressure on institutions to be accountable in respect to their alerts to counter fraud. And Cal, we know retail banking in Ireland has had a, a very checkered record, and that's being polite since the financial crisis. We've had the tracker mortgage scandal and so on. These are all well documented. Neither me nor you need to reflect any further on them, but they are they are facts. But I suppose that brings us to the whole question. And a lot of people explain those instances by saying it's a cultural issue. We have a, we have a poor banking culture in Ireland or there's a poor banking culture in Britain, whatever, whatever country that happens to be being popularly discussed. Um, does, does this whole area of machine tools in banking, combating wrongdoing and fraud and so on, does it say anything about culture or can we connect in all this great technology you're talking about? Can we connect it into this wider issue of banking or company or organizational culture, in your opinion? I've been focusing on fraud external to the financial institution in, in my conversation with yourself during this, this discussion. And we've done work where we, we show the importance of local national culture 
So measurements have surveyed national culture in accounting for that fraud. And it does turn out that those dimensions of national culture, things like individualism and risk aversion, are really important at predicting those inc incidents. But within the financial institution, we're also at the same time uh, now looking at measurements of culture. So this is a really slippery area, right? This is, this is a big challenge of the area of culture. How can we measure it? And work in the area have looked at things like, well, you know, what's the extent of philanthropic contributions by the financial institution? Can we conduct a survey of how employees are doing at the financial institution? We're taking a complementary approach. We're textually analysing the regulatory filings of these institutions with a view to devising measurements of their culture. And we're showing that measurements of their culture, for instance, their orientation towards competition, uh, their orientation towards control and collaboration, these, these dimensions of the organisational culture are actually very, very useful in terms of explaining the arrival rate of sanctions, of enforcement actions from the regulator. So I very much agree that culture within the organisation can account for fraudulent events within the organisation. And it should be a key point of focus for regulators, as substantiated by our ongoing empirical work showing just that. And that leads me into what's my final question, Cal, because we're, we're under time pressures. But these machine tools that you're talking about, these new technologies you're talking about, they're mainly embedded in financial institutions themselves. Can you talk to me a little bit about do regulators themselves have competing technologies that put them on the same um, level playing field with the institutions themselves? Or is there an unequalness there or a lopsidedness there? Or are you happy that, from what you know, at least, uh, you know, regulators around the world have similar tools that uh, allow them to kind of meet on the same battlefield? So from what I, I hear, regulators such as the FCA and FINRA are investing heavily very heavily in the development of their data science teams with a view to being in a position to uh, permit financial institutions to use these methods and then to supervise effectively the use of those methods by financial institutions. So at present, the trajectory, I would say, is very positive in terms of the regulator becoming increasingly competent and capable uh, in respect to ensuring that the deployment of these machine learning models is indeed accountable. Well, that's a good positive note to end it on. And as I said, to re rehash over what we said, also to those listening, please exert your own surveillance over your own accounts. Um, it's not necessarily obligated, but it's important. Uh, we all need to do that because as Cal has referred, the pandemic has made a lot of different things happen that people maybe didn't see coming. So this is the time to, to play your own part in all of this. And together, whether it's man or machine, we can make sure that this becomes less of a social and economic problem as well. So thank you very much to Cal for coming on today. It's been a fascinating conversation. There's going to be a lot more in this area. I think we're only really on a start of a journey. I get a sense of what you're telling me, Cal. Um, so I think we'd have you back on again in, in a year or two when things move even further. So Cal Muckley is the Professor of Operational Risk in Banking and Finance here at the UCD College of Business. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much, Alistair.